So I, I do have a quick question. How did you hear about us? Because Tom told me you reached out, reached out to us. Pure narcissism. I was. Oh, awesome. I was keeping an eye on, you know, script fella, Google, see what's coming up. And I said, oh, there's a podcast here. And then it, you had the 10 filmmaker channels that had helped you. And um, I was, yeah, I was really chuffed that you'd put me alongside the likes of Philip Bloom and this guy edit. So I, so yeah, I think I, I, I hunted down your Facebook page and gave you a like, but then look how this has connected us. It's, it's the way yeah, it works, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, it is. And that's really awesome. Um, I was, I was really excited to hear that you reached out to us because a, a lot of our education comes from YouTube and the internet. And so there's a few authorities that I really go to on YouTube and who I really always just eat up everything they have to say and discovered your channel through Reddit. And then instantly it just became one of my favorite channels to listen to and pretty much the go-to one for scripts for me. Well, thank you. I mean, that's great to hear. I started it up two years ago and the whole YouTube journey in a way has been for me, you know, I spent 17, 18 years as a screenwriter, but the YouTube journey is something else. And, um, it's, it, it's been an education. Um, and uh, yeah, I've, I've, there's so much this, I don't know where you, what you want out of me, but there's so much that I could get into on storytelling, YouTube, how you don't, shouldn't be a monogamous screenwriter. A lot of people, uh -huh. I was a monogamous screenwriter for 17 years. I was totally obsessed and focused on one thing, which was getting to Hollywood, getting agents, getting managers, getting jobs and earning a living. And I now know okay. that, that was blinkered. Well, certainly we, we want to get into all of that, um, or at least as much as we can. Um, we kind of like to do just more like conversational. We definitely ask questions, but kind of just allow the conversation to go wherever we want it to go, you know, kind of let it be organic like that. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And I'm, we also want to get to know about you as well, like, like uh, you know, who you are, how, like your inspirations, some of your favorite movies, stuff like that. Like, that's what we love to talk about, too, is... We're also huge film nerds as well. So, I mean, it's a big part of what we talk about and what we do. What's your, uh, what's your, favorite, what's your favorite movie, Tom? Oh, my favorite movie. Uh, you know, we just watched Tokyo Story because we do. Uh, oh, wow. And Tokyo Story really kind of struck me. Uh, but maybe Eyes Wide Shut or uh, damn, uh, Dr. Strangelove. Definitely probably a Kubrick film for sure. Or uh, Vampire's Kiss. I don't know. <laughs> Have you seen <laughs> I've seen at least two of those. Um, and what about you, Stephen? What's your favorite movie of all time? I mean, mine fluctuates a lot. It kind of depends on the mood I'm in. But certainly right now, I would have to say my favorite movie is Come and See or Kill Hitler. Oh, uh, that's the Russian war movie, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you ever seen it? <laughs> yes, I have. I mean, you can't, yeah. you can't unsee that movie, can you? No, not at all. I mean, I, you know, I'm not very well educated on a lot of this. So we're watching like a top 100 aggregated list for Criterion. And this was one of the films on the list. And I was like, okay, I'll check it out. Had no idea what I was getting into. And within the first 30 minutes, I was like, oh God, what am I watching? But then that movie just keeps ramping up and up and up. And it's like, I mean, at the end of it, you want to kill Hitler, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Die, baby Hitler. It's, it's a terrific film. Yes, it's wonderful. And uh, yeah. what about yourself? I'm going to be a bit boring and say Goodfellas because that is Ooh. such a bloke's movie, as we say over here. It's a guy's movie. 
but it's a movie yeah. I've seen a hundred times. And it was just the, and by the way, it's you absolutely do not buy that screenplay and learn from it because it's got, I think a lot of people, myself included, when I started writing, I was two influences, Martin Scorsese and Oliver Stone. And in fact, one, one of the first things I worked on was imagine if Oliver Stone collaborated with Martin Scorsese, what would they come up with this sort of gangster story of how the US naval intelligence used the mafia to fight the Second World War, both in New York and also in Sicily during the invasion. And um, uh, it, was, it was just imitating. It, I was imitating. Oh, okay. And I think a lot of people start when you write, you start imitating your heroes, which is, you know, it's a good place to start. Yeah. But your heroes often are doing things that really are quite hard to pull off. Yeah, exactly. And they've also kind of honed their own voice. Like they, they're writing in their, in their language, right? And so it's very easy to spot an imitation. It is. And if you read a script like JFK, which is, you know, it's a masterpiece, it's just full of documentary footage and blending the real. And it's, it's, it's a cluster. It's just all over the place. Flashbacks within flashbacks. And I think one might read that and think, oh, I can do flashbacks within flashbacks and I can get away with that because <laughs> Oliver Stone does. Right. Yeah. So yeah, no, Oliver Stone was my, I did actually, the pinnacle of my career, I had about sort of six things made out, out of all the things that I've written and the, but actually the pinnacle of my career was pitching Oliver Stone an Iran-Contra project. And oh wow, they say you shouldn't meet the heroes. They don't know what they're talking about. It was fantastic. <laughs> so um, that's wow. probably my peak Hollywood experience. And he was one of my influences, one of my heroes. Oh, that's, oh, that's so awesome. awesome. So when you meet him, do you, t do you gush over Are you like, dude, you're my favorite. I, I love you. You're my hero. Or do you just keep it like very professional and not let that, that get in the way? Well, we probably should have blown. It was, so I should explain, I was in a writing partnership for 17 years, 16, 17 years. So we went in as a team and the job was to pitch a story, a specific project about these two journalists who broke the Iran-Contra scandal. So the topsy-turvy version of all the president's men, these two wire service reporters, which unlike Woodward and Bernstein, they actually had their careers destroyed and they had their lives threatened and they didn't get the truth out. Wow. But yeah, we went in there and it was very much, we made so many mistakes because we'd been pitching this thing all around town and we had like a 25 minute, you know, dog and pony show. Oh, okay. uh, and the first thing was Oliver Stone was late because he'd been in a fender bender. And he came in and he was just dripping with sweat because obviously, you know, it was LA weather. It was over, over a hundred and he'd just been in this oh, huge. Wow. And so the opening line is I, I completely cheesed it out. And I said, your government doesn't want you to hear this pitch, you know, and uh, he did smile politely and we got into it, but <laughs> we went into it for about 25 minutes. And then some, you'd see his attention was drifting and then suddenly oh, okay. he's, he's like an absolute barracuda. He'd come right back in and he'd asked a question. He goes, where did the cocaine come from? Where was it transshipped from? And you thought, wow, we've got to be on our feet here. Um, but I think the biggest okay. mistake, I mean, I love, that's one of my treasured memories, but we didn't allow him to talk enough because it was a pitch situation. And this is something which is, if you're talking too much in a pitch, you want it to become a conversation rather than a stand up, right, we're going to talk. And I don't know, I think... I, I wish we could have had longer in there. He was just going off to shoot a movie about Mao Lei, the massacre with Bruce Willis. And then as, right. oh, okay. and it was just before the writer's strike. I mean, this is quite a long time ago. This must have been 2008. And Tom Cruise had bought United Artists and he was getting on the plane 
to go out to Vietnam and they cancelled the movie because they thought we don't have oh. the script. And so even Oliver Stone, you know, has to deal with that kind of stuff. So, yeah, you know, wow, that's the nature wow. of the business. That's a hell of a tangent. <laughs> hey, no, it that, worked that's for us. Awesome. That's hey, a wonderful story. We could just listen to your stories all day. Um, but I guess we should do the intro or a better intro here because we kind of just naturally rolled into the conversation. Yeah. Uh, Tom, you want to take it away, good host? All right. So uh, if you guys have been listening in the, these nine minutes so far, this is Twin Shadows Podcast. As always, you're joined by your two hosts, Tom and Steve. And today we have a very awesome and special guest that you guys have been hearing from a little bit already, Dominic Morgan, the script fella. So, script fella. you know, welcome. Thanks for the doing the intro and thanks for coming on the show. This is awesome. So, you know, we, we want to talk about everything from writing to your career and all that stuff. And Stephen, do you have anything that you wanted to jump in with uh, to start? So when did your love for cinema or for writing really began? Because I know before this you were in financing, correct? Uh, well, I worked for the Financial Times, which was, uh, you know, it's a financial newspaper, but I actually was in a sales department. I sold advertising space. So okay. I was, I did, I, got, I did drama at university, wanted to be an actor, walked in there and within about three weeks realized I wanted to be behind the camera. And then they had a playwriting course and I really got into it. But I left uni and I just needed a job. So I spent five years flogging space, selling space. But a lot of what I did, selling to advertising agencies, pitching the sort of whole getting to know people and hopefully winning them over, that was once I sort of went into Hollywood and in, in the UK, it was a very smooth transition. It was, they were like the same meetings, but just with more interesting products. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I have a background in sales, marketing, um, but I was, yeah, so I was working for this newspaper and I flirted with screenwriting. I read some books. I'd been to one or two courses and then the IRA blew up a truck, truck bomb outside my house while I was, I, oh, I, wow. I go into it. It's on my YouTube channel. One of the talks. Yeah, I saw the video. Yeah. So that, that was a real kind of inciting incident for me. I realized that uh, I, I needed to get living and pursue my dreams today because I may not be around tomorrow. And there wow. were many things that came from that. I, I, got, I proposed to my girlfriend within three days and I committed to screenwriting. <laughs> I think that that moment is the kind of you know, it's the Rosetta Stone or I don't know, maybe it's the Rosebud moment of, of my whole life, really. And it's something that I share with my daughter, who's been in a terrorist attack as well. She, she dodged a, a nail bomb, uh, the Ariana Grande concert. She was there and oh, wow. she called me and I was talking to her and she had issues just like I had issues. So that was a commonality. And then my mother dodged the flying bomb which flattened her house in World War II. So there's sort of three generations of Morgans. We've been dodging high explosives since <laughs> 1944. Um, what it means, I don't know, but we got away with it so far. Hey, having dodging is important. So <laughs> yeah, it good, sounds like you got both have. bad luck and good luck there. Yeah. It's, but, uh, but it's interesting how that turned into such an opportunity for you to really get you to, to make that change in your life. It lit a fire under me. And, well, you know, the job at the FT was great. Um, I mean, it's, <laughs> there was a lot of very long liquid lunches with a great bunch of people. <laughs> Honestly, it was, it was as good as you could get as a job that wasn't in the film world and following your passion. But yeah. it wasn't creating. And I think the one thing that has always excited me is ideas. 
and making stuff up. And you know what it's like, you know, that buzz that you get when you're, there's nothing, it's intangible and it comes out and it's on the page or it's on the stage or it's on screen. That is the biggest adrenaline rush in the world. Absolutely. Especially when uh, you get into that flow state where you almost feel like you don't even know where it's coming from and you're just discovering the story as you're writing it. And that's, I mean, for me, that's pure intoxication. There's nothing, like you said, there's no, nothing better than that rush as like someone that's creative and someone that writes constantly. So, yeah. When, so what was your first kind of foray into writing? Where was it that, uh, Scorsese, uh, that was us. Oliver Stone style. No, no, that was our second one. Oh, so, so a guy okay. I was at uni with, we, we, um, I'd written something that I'd sold for 500 uh, bucks to a producer. It was dreadful, but we started talking and, it, it was completely accidental. It was just like, let's mess around at the weekends and write an action movie like Speed or Die Hard. And yeah. it was the beginning of our, it was like my second marriage. And this was the, <laughs> this was the great moment. This was the meet cute moment where I, I lived in, in the West End and Matt would come over on, on Saturdays and Sundays and he'd bring pastries. And I was just recently married and we'd just write and we'd just come up with shit. And the idea, it was a classic fusion of both of us. So I'd read about this accident at a South African diamond mine, whereby this train had broken through all its safety, whatever, you know, safety procedures, safety mechanisms. Yeah. yeah, And it'd gone through all of them Mm -hmm. and and plummeted down the lift shaft And that got me thinking, you know, what if this was a kind of like a a sort of corporate homicide thing and all these miners are trapped down there. And then we started talking about it, but uh, long story short, we came up with this kind of, I think we called it mine hard pitch and story (laughs) about these miners. They're stuck at the bottom of my mine and the cave rescue team have to go down to the deepest uh, sort of cave system in the world called Hell's Ladder which that's what the movie was called. But essentially it was a rescue flick with a saboteur on the team. I, I loved Alistair McLean movies. So yeah. Right, yeah. Where Eagles Dares in my top 10 boys, absolute top 10. <laughs> it's something about that movie where you can just hear the snowshoes crunching in the snow. And, oh, you know, as yeah. they go into the Schloss Adler and there's a betray, you know, McLean always has a saboteur on the team. So we, we wrote that movie and we, we sent it to about, well, I sent it to about four agents in the UK. Remember, there's no email at this stage. It's about 95 mm-hmm. or it's just coming in. It's query letters. And one of the agents, it just happened that his favorite place in the whole world was the Drakensberg Valley in South Africa, which was the opening slug line. Exterior, Drakensberg Valley day. And because of that, he was predisposed to liking it. And he just kept reading it and he signed us. He was very old school. He sold it to Talisman who'd made Rob Roy. Oh, okay. And they offered us a three picture deal to adapt a book they had. And also they bought one of our pictures. So that was it. I, you know, Matt stopped, he was an actor. He stopped being an actor. I stopped being an ad salesman. And for the next 17 years, um, you know, we worked as uh, full-time screenwriters. Wow, that's awesome. That's so awesome. You know, it's interesting because Tom and I, we work together a lot and we write our scripts a lot and we're kind of running it. I I mean, we're still figuring out how to 
work together, I think. We're still learning that dynamic. So how was it with you and Matt? Like, how did you do that with someone else? Because I know some things that I run into is I don't, I, sometimes I feel uncomfortable changing Tom's words or changing a scene that he's written um, because I don't want to overstep my bounds and and upset him. So how did that work for you two? Well, for the first 12 years, it was give and take. It was, you know, we if we wrote a script, the irony was we'd kind of come to blows over, over two things in the whole script. So you had 110 pages mm-hmm. and there would be two things that we vehemently disagreed. So in yeah. the end, we came up with this process whereby, you know, we'd flick a coin or one of us would say, I'd give it to you, but you owe me the next one. <laughs> oh, okay. It started our process in the end. We used to write in the same room together. And one of us okay. would be at the computer. The other one would be sort of lying on the sofa or walking around. And then, you know, that became impossible. So we'd split scenes up and we just spent all the time on Skype. It was exhausting. You do an eight hour Skype call, breaking a story and just did that for decades, just doing that. That was Mm -hmm. the actual writing was really fast because let's, you know, when we got the one thing you have to do if you're in a partnership is you've got to have a really detailed plan so that the left hand knows what the right hand's doing. And, you know, one of my favorite mantras is everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the face. Mike Tyson said that. And it's the <laughs> right. for outlines, right? That you say, right, it's going to go like this. And then you get into it and then you yeah. realize, hold on, this isn't going to work. And so then you've got to communicate. And the way that we do it is we'd split up sequences or, you know, 15 pages each. So act one, we'd split into two. And the advantage of that is, you know, both of us could write like, I don't know, between five and seven, seven, eight pages a day to start when it got faster and faster. So getting into situation at the day of end, the end of the first day, we've got sometimes 15 pages in the bag. Day two, we've got 30 pages in the bag. Day three, if it's a contained thriller, we've almost got half a first draft because you can create so much more content, so much more, you know, if, and, but by the way, the writing was the, the actual writing, that was the reward. We'd been breaking the story for six weeks prior to that. Right. Okay. So you guys did a lot of plotting and outlining before breaking the story, or you just kind of were like, Hey, we're, you trusted him to just jump in and take his 15 and you did your 15. No, we had to break, we had to break the whole thing very methodically. So that we knew which part of the character arc was happening in our section. Okay. Yeah. yeah, Right. You know, and and the same goes for pitches, by the way, when we pitch, go on these water bottle tours, you know, you can go in for a chat, (laughs) but if it's actually, okay, they're interested in buying a pitch and your representatives have set up a meeting, it's, you can be relaxed about it, but if you're telling a story, you, we found we had to decide who was going to cover which plot beats. So when we went in to see Oliver Stone, it was, you know, we'd learned it. We were right, very, yeah, we yeah. were highly disciplined. You have to, yeah. But you don't yeah, want to make it sound like you've learned it. That's the. It's got to be conversational, <laughs> um, right? But, you know, there are many ways to pitch. You can, you can pitch the, the character's dilemma, the end of Act One. Ask a couple of questions. Hit that big middle of Act Two, and then go straight to the big low, and then the resolution, and miss out everything else. So you don't need to go into the whole story. I mean, the, the whole thing about pitching to production companies and the water bottle tour and getting assignments is a huge topic. 
And I don't know if you want to go into it, but I have some very specific thoughts on the whole process. So I'd love to go into it because I have, or we have no idea of what that world is and hopefully we'll be entering into it uh, in, within a year or two, uh, because we are working on a feature that we're trying to get pushed out and then seeing where that takes us. Um, so yeah, I mean, please share, teach us. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the goal is if there used to be a lot more open assignments when we first, we, we first got into Hollywood, signed with UTA and first of several of our agents, um, they would send us all these every day. It was like Bowfinger where packages from UPS would turn up and there'd be another comic book in there or graphic novel or, or, and it was for six months, they, we were just phone pitching stuff because we were both in the UK and uh-huh. we were at a massive disadvantage because we were competing against American or English writers who were in the room. And so we found that our best, our, our odds were much better when we went out for you know, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks at a time. And then we were in the game. But we also felt the moment that we landed back in Heathrow, suddenly we became less relevant. But the actual, the whole thing of getting a job is is really tough. I mean, I saw Carrie Fisher made a comment of how she'd been told to jump through all the hoops on a project and they didn't pay her. And she ended up wasting three months. That was Carrie Fisher, who was one of the top anonymous script rewriters in the business. She was paid millions for her work, but not when she was pitching for jobs. And I hope you guys do get to the point where you're having all these meetings and that people are throwing lots of properties at you. But the whole game is loaded against the writer because of our deep desire to want to work and to want to be hired. Right. And the fact that you know, we said a minute ago, you said, Tom, well, you know, the, the buzz of creating movies or television is, is, you know, it's crack cocaine. They know that. And they yeah. use that because <laughs> they say, okay, can you just flesh out the middle of act two? Can you just, you know, what are the five beats here? And we, I think it's endemic that you start with a production company, maybe with the cre- creative exec, then you move up the chain. And then when you've worked this whole pitch out, they put you in front of the studio. But what they don't tell you at the beginning is that you're going to have to pitch the whole film to the studio exec, which means you're going to have to break the whole story. Now, if you own that material, then that's good work because if it doesn't work out, you're walking away with something that you might be able to spec. But most of the jobs in Hollywood are not based on your IP. And so- Ah, right. That's the problem. You know, these, these, these beauty contests, these sweepstakes yeah. pitches where they bring in 10 writers who break the story 10 times and then they decide they're not going to develop it or whatever. So it's, it's really intoxicating when you've got representatives sending you all these things, but you could spend eight months, I think we did, working on things we didn't own where instead we could have got the balance right and you always need to be creating your own IP, your own stories, especially now. Okay. So, so is that maybe a practice that they do where they'll have people pitch all of these ideas and then be like, oh, well, we're not going to go with any of those, but we're going to kind of get all of the good ideas we've heard, put them together and then run off with that. Is that a, well, is that, that that's something that a writer would ever have to worry about? It happens. Yeah. It's technically known as a fishing trip. It happens in the advertising world that the client will say, right, okay, we're putting out our agency, we're re-reviewing our agency and we want to hear pitches from other agencies for the business. 
and five agencies will come in and say what they'll do for Procter and Gamble, Gamble, and then Procter and Gamble say, you know what, we're going to stay with our with our current agency, and they've had all this input of ideas. <laughs> wow! Right? There's no, they don't have any skin in the game like we do because we're investing our creativity and our, you know, our buzz in it. So it's a really hard. I mean, a lot of people would say, well, this was a, this is a kind of rich man's problem. I wish I had this problem. Um, you know, I wish I was in the point where I was in the room, but it's very easy to do a lot of work and not get paid any money in Hollywood. Absolutely. Yeah. And something yeah. that Stephen and I also do is we, we make our own films as well. Is that something that was something in your interest as well? Would you ever want to be the director or nothing like that, or just always the writer? My biggest mistake, Tom, is not going down that route earlier. So you are absolutely on it, particularly now when mm -hmm. the, you know, the weapons of filmmaking are now accessible and the only bar to quality really, okay, you've got a talent, there's a bar, talent will, can, can you know, press many buttons in the, the corporate machines. But in terms of storytelling, uh, you guys are doing exactly the right thing by looking to create your own content. I keep on saying content because I've been doing all this YouTube. It's not content, it's stories. It's st <laughs> stories, right? But, but yeah, I, yeah. I had never picked up a camera till I started my YouTube channel. And oh, okay. I didn't understand. I thought, you know, I've been in the business almost two decades. I've got credits. I've met these directors. I've worked for all these producers. I've had 40, I've been commissioned, I think 35 times. You know, and six of the things I've written have, have got made. Not everything that I'm particularly proud of, but it got made. <laughs> um, but I, it was only, and this is a couple of years ago, it was, it was one of the reasons I started my YouTube channel. I, I went through a particularly lean time. I thought, okay, well, what am I going to do? And I noticed you can work as a film extra and you can earn, oh. you know, you can work on Fantastic Beats or Wonder Woman or whatever. And, you know, they pay you up to, the hours are long. They pay you up to sort of probably $450 a day on a really, really long day when you get there at four yeah. and you leave there at 11. I mean, it's, it's hard work. <laughs> Have you guys done any yeah. extra work? I've, I actually was an extra in a movie called Jarhead with Jake Gyllenhaal. I know the movie. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was one of the extras in there. So well, I, I think it's, um, I think all screenwriters should work as extras for at least five days before they go anywhere near a computer because it's only when you step on the set of a $200 million Hollywood movie that you finally understand the economics and you finally understand okay. why this is an army, this is a machine. And for them to take a bet on your story, if it's an expensive story, if it doesn't have any IP, they're risking so much. And... Yeah, I mean that was a that that was the biggest eye opener on the economics and the mm -hmm. fact that there's the army. But the other eye opener was just looking at the way I really got inspired. To like, I want to pick up a camera. I want to see what they're doing with the <laughs> tape measures and pull or focus. I didn't know when when the, they're doing my hair, and I said, "Well, what's your?" I was asking everyone's jobs names. You know, oh, so you're a, all right. So you're the stylist. Okay, so that's the AD. And I realized I knew yeah. nothing, that I'd been in the film business for almost two <laughs> decades and I knew absolutely nothing about the film industry in terms of the production side. And one of my big gripes, and you know, my co-writer has the same issue, is that writers are not allowed on the battlefield generally. You know, we create okay. everybody's jobs, right? I kind of also think of a writer as like kind of like the handoff person too, in a sense, to the director and producer team. 
because what it's you kind of are giving away your baby essentially, right? Because once they have it, they're going to do whatever the hell they want to do with it. And when the actors are going to change things and it's not in your hand anymore, unless you have that kind of creative control, which I believe would probably be pretty rare in most cases. Or if you're w- working in television where you think about uh, the high writer's game, right? It's a writer's game. So the hierarchy in theater, it's a Samuel Beckett play directed by Sir Peter Hall or whoever, but it's the play, the text is the highest form of the art. The text is everything. Mm-hmm. And then you look at television, the text is everything. The story is everything. You know, you look at Breaking Bad, Brian Cranston was not a huge star. He wasn't the reason that that got made. He became a star and he became the reason that everyone was watching, but it came from Vincent Gilligan's head and soul. And then you've got films, which, you know, often the, the, the story, it's nice to have a story, but it's not necessarily the most important thing there. So the writer, you know, it's really, the writer is not in charge of their own destiny in film. Everyone knows this, mm-hmm. but, uh, but yeah. So yeah, if you want respect, then, you know, become a showrunner, you know, become a mm-hmm. move into television because that's where all the action is. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure. I mean, for us, like it, the, the big thing was we're going to be co-writer, co-directors. Cause we're, that's what, I mean, I figured if we write for ourselves, it, it doesn't really matter because we're going to be creating everything at every step of the way. So, so are you now starting to get into that for yourself where you're starting to be, to break into those? Or are you going into maybe the TV route? Like you said, maybe trying to show run. I'm, I'm actually, I do have a couple of projects which are still bubbling away. And there's one particular one, which is unfinished business, which I might mention a bit later, but my, my whole thing now, I'm like one of those former players turned coach, turned creator. So I have to be honest with you guys that after 17 years of being stuck in my imagination with imaginary characters, I'm really enjoying working with other writers. And I go in and I fix their stories with them and I suggest things. And I'm also now making films for brands, guerrilla marketing content. And I don't see it as being too dissimilar to what I've been doing for the last 17 years. That there is this whole thing of content marketing, knowledge marketing, where you, the, <laughs> they're adverts, but they look like programs, if that makes sense. Yeah, 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 for yeah. sure. Because of Netflix, because of the way that the, situ- the, the whole marketing landscape has evolved, we no longer need to watch adverts unless it's pre-roll on YouTube or whatever, because we choose yeah. not to. So all these brands have got all this money and they can't get eyeballs. So what are they going to do? You know, they can't like Procter and Gamble or whatever, we spend a hundred million a year or whatever. They can't reach people anymore. And I think it's a really interesting time because I'd like to think that at some stage Procter and Gamble will start putting money into television and, uh, you know, web TV and all the rest of it. Because rather than buying ad spots with networks, why don't they make the content themselves? And it goes back to, you talk about the, you know, the soap operas. Actually started as radio plays that they were sponsored by soap brands because they worked out that the housewives that they were targeting in America in the 40s would be interested in these radio plays. So that's how content started. It was sponsored 
and there weren't invasive adverts. And then somebody said, a bright idea, why don't we just interrupt the story and sell <laughs> our stuff in the middle of it? And I think that I'd love to think that we'll go back to that model and that these brands will stop paying for spots and they'll actually become television companies. I mean, you think how much money Procter & Gamble spends on advertising or has spent, and all of it's inefficient now. Yeah, They've got to rethink it. And I think they need to get into business with storytellers because that's the way to get to the hearts of consumers and people that they want to target. But that's a bit off field. We're going away from screenwriting. But I'd like to think that all these big brands are going to start thinking, well, we used to pay advertising agencies to sell our stuff, but now we need to tell stories rather than sell ourselves. So who, who's going to do that for us? Procter & Gamble, if you're listening, uh, go ahead and uh, start paying us. We'll make stories for you. Dominic, we'll make some stories for you too. Like, you know, come on, let's go. <laughs> stories for everyone. <laughs> everyone needs, and all of it, the best, you know, ads that don't look like ads. Um, I've made a couple of them and not necessarily they're the best ones, but I've used storytelling that you have a character with a problem they meet an obstacle and their character, you know, their traits come out by the way they either conquer this problem or they fail to conquer it. And you have a nice little mm -hmm. arc and all of it suddenly comes back. And I just realized the one thing I was missing was my camera. And right, yeah. you know, I think it takes a lot longer to learn how to write a screenplay than it does to operate a camera. Uh, yeah, I would say so. I mean, well, I don't know. I mean, okay, uh, that, that's disrespectful that. to <laughs> yeah, Deakins and those kind of guys. But I'm not talking, I'm talking about at a level whereby you can get the job done, you know, that, that there are things I, I would advocate that all screenwriters should learn about cinematic storytelling and visual grammar. And that this is something that's going to, I'm going get to get into on my channel next year. I want to teach screenwriters to think more cinematically. You guys will be because you know, you know the language of film. You know how to cut stuff. You know how to frame stuff. But so many of yeah. my clients, they send me things. I say, that's unfilmable. You know, you're not writing. <laughs> it doesn't look like a movie because you, you're writing like it was a novel. Or you're, yeah. you're yes. not. You, you, everyone says, show, don't tell. But if you don't know the language of cinema, how are you going to write towards that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and also, how do you balance what is achievable in real life, in a sense, from what your imagination can take you? Because I know, and also there's, I know uh, you can over direct in your screenplays. Like there are so many things that you can do. And, and it's like, I, I mean, I write, I, so I, if you're in, into it later, I did write a little quirky screenplay that with all our guests, I write a, a little short that we read and oh, it's wow. always just a little, it's always a little fun thing with all our guests. So I've written like 50 of these or something. And you did say you uh, were into acting at one point. So, you know, <laughs> oh, well, I have to read it. I have to act it. Oh yeah. You have to, you have to be a character for sure. Okay. It's just for fun. It's going to be crazy and weird. I promise. Uh, yeah. But, uh, so and it's something that it's kind of like when I start to write and it's like, oh, there's so many little techniques and just learning proper formatting and getting those, getting the, your own style down. Because when you go and you, re I, I've been reading other screenplays and it's like, no one writes the same. There is no real screenplayer that just writes the same. Everyone kind of has their own style, their own techniques. And it's like, it's so interesting to see. And especially when you can tell when someone is a screenwriter and then one is someone's a screenwriter and director. Right. Because they are, because when they, you write for yourself, I think you kind of write completely differently. Uh, how do you kind of approach that where you're 
uh, writing just for other people because I've never really kind of taken that into consideration as someone that tries to be a filmmaker as well as screenwriter. So I think there are two projectors that play the movie. There's the projector in your head that plays the movie. You can see all of that. Now, what most writers do is they describe everything in their head, the projector that plays the movie. That's a mistake, in my opinion. You need- Oh, see, I'm making that mistake. <laughs> right, you, but in, unless you are writing to direct, and therefore what you're doing is creating an instruction book, an instruction manual. The problem is that a lot of screenwriters, most of, you know, I've, I've read about 150 scripts in the last seven, eight months, and 70% of people are describing what's in, the, in their heads. And they, they don't have any sense of removing what is not necessary for the reader. And they're describing every look that the characters give, which in cinema, a look can be everything. On the page, it's incredibly dry and boring. You know, he looks at yes. her. He looks, and, and, and then other stuff just, I mean, I, I am going to do some vids on it. I've got a whole list. I've been making a list of all the suboptimal writing practices that we all do. Um, and the yeah. only reason why I think I've got a heightened sense of what works and what doesn't work in terms of readability, you know, the whole goal here is mm -hmm. to create a readable screenplay. Why? Because if you can create a readable screenplay, a good read, the industry person will be able to say, look somebody in the eye and say, read this, it's a good read. Because they know, whereas if you're giving them a really technical and hard work job, A, they won't thank you for it. So they won't feel like, oh, I, you know, I need to pay this back. But B, they won't want to subject anyone else to it. And I think this is the biggest thing um, that's missed by, you know, writers, aspiring writers or writers on the brink is, yeah, you can create this very well-constructed character arc and have all the great beats and loads of dramatic irony. But if it's not fun to read, if it's not engaging, then you're undoing all your good work. And so I think that there are many, many things that make a good read. Um, but one of them is having some judgment over what the reader actually needs to hear. And that comes from experience. I mean, with, with Matt and I, he'd write the first 15 pages, I'd write the next 15. And then at the end of the draft, we'd rewrite each other. Ah, right. Yeah. And so he would nail me for anything that got in the way of his movie in his head. <laughs> and I would right. absolutely destroy him and rewrite him for anything that <laughs> broke the flow. This is the other thing, guys. You've got to have a flow image to image because then you mm -hmm. stop being aware that you're reading a script and you're seeing it in your head. And yeah. I think because we wrote 45 screenplays together and we did probably like 15 drafts of each and we, I am, my superpower is rewriting because I've been doing it for 17 years and because I'm aware of my own failings and Matt taught me what I wasn't doing well and I taught him what he wasn't doing well. And when I'm reading a script, the first thing is I'm like, okay, you've used 50% you've used more words than you, you require. That you're, you're using suboptimal adjectives. Every script I go through, the first thing, everyone uses walks all the time. Walks here, walks there. There's a script. And it's really easy to see which crutch words you're using. Go to your script now, the one that you've written. How, how long is it? It's ten, uh, 11 pages. Okay, so I want you to do a search and destroy on two words. So do search, walk. Let's see how many times. This is the, the blind test. How many times do you use the word walk in your script? Nine. So you're using that verb 
every page. Yes. Okay, read me the first sentence with the word walk in it. Adam walks to the AC. Okay, so <laughs> what's happening there? And I'm not, I'm not trying to shame you. This is what we all do it. I used oh, to do shame it. him. Shame him, Dominic. Shame <laughs> him. <laughs> okay, I, when I used to do some acting, one of the first things that you do as an actor is find the character center, find how they move. Because often how a character moves is indicative of who they are. So every verb is an opportunity to paint your character. And movement is a key one. So do they amble? Do they sashay? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get, okay, I get now let's play the game. Let's see if we can come up with 20 walks word. Let's go. We've got to, we'll do it round and round. I'll do one, you do one, and then Steve does one. Okay, so you, uh -oh. I'll, okay, I'll start. Sashay. So the whole line is, what's the whole line? You could say the whole line. All right, Adam walks to the AC. Okay, Adam staggers over to the AC. Right, you're on, Tom. All right, Adam, I'm going to just steal yours. Stumbles. How about that? Stumbles yep. to the AC. All right, I'm going to steal that and say, Adam saunters to the AC. <laughs> Adam pads over to the AC. All right, uh, Adam shifts over to the AC. I don't know why we're sticking with S, but... <laughs> <laughs> Go for it, Steve. Uh, Adam creeps to the AC. Adam tiptoes over to the AC. Adam prances to the AC. <laughs> That's a banger. <laughs> Steve. I'm rewriting it right now. You guys don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> He's changing all the walks right now. <laughs> there will be no walks. Okay, so we can do this for, for us, but that, you said, now let's do another one. Okay, do a search for look. How many looks do you have in your 10 pages, Tom? Eight. Okay, let's read me a sentence with look in it. I didn't appreciate the way she was looking at me. Okay, so read me another. Adam stands up looking down the barrel of his 45. That's good. Keep Mostly going. Mostly adjectives. Yeah, that's okay. Another one? Mostly, it's, I think it's all dialogue. Okay. No character actually looks at anything. So they you don't have or... sort of Dominic looks at Tom. You haven't had that. Or Dominic gives Tom a look of concern. That's like a key. I hate that. that that's something that we get rid of always. <laughs> there must be, you must have a look. There must be gives him a look or something like that. Little spoiler, but Adam holding the lighter and pipe looks to Frankie. Okay, so you say looks to Frankie could be, you know, he swivels his head on Frankie, he scopes right. Frankie, he, he eyeballs Frankie. It's, again, right. it's trying to, the easiest thing is just to write, he looks, he walks, he talks, and other things like sighing, the amount of script saying, ah, oh. or, and the other one, you know, you say, oh, you know, Tom rolls his eyes. Whenever I see that in a script, that automatically gets destroyed, you know, because that anything that sounds tropey, anything that if you've heard that, um, you know, Steve watches Tom like a hawk, if you've heard it, it's a trope. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. So I, I see scripts and this, this is how I work as opportunities for expressing character and tone. And I see way too many wasted sentences. So if we were to work on your script, we would work hard on that scene description. You know, in, in Final Draft, they don't call it scene description anymore. It's called scene action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I call it action as well, yeah. It's, it's action. It's the most important. And a lot of people say, oh, well, it's all about the dialogue. And, you know, this is just like atmosphere or whatever. No, you know, if it's a novel, the words are everything. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I've noticed, like, I think there's kind of this weird line you have to walk with the script where you kind of want to make it a, all right feels like you want to make the script a little more dry and concise but then so how much spice do you want to add to the script to make it interesting because you also don't want to make it like you're writing a novel well i mean it all depends 
on the tone of the story. So if you're writing Dances with Wolves, I know that's a really old example. If you're writing something, period, then that would lend itself to a more mm. novelistic tone. You want to get the smell of it, all these kind of unfilmables. Uh, you want to really drill down into how this place feels, the mud and the texture of this world. But if it's a hard-boiled noir, you will be adopting, I would suggest, uh, a different kind of sentence construction, which is more clipped and cold. Mm -hmm. So adjust your fire depending on the tone of your story, I would suggest. So then, like, let's say you're describing the smell of the fire. Now, obviously, you're not going to translate that into what's on the screen. So how often should writers look to add those kind of descriptors? descriptors? Well, it's, it's a real judgment issue. If you think about film, there are five visual elements. So you've got camera, costume, sort of acting, location, and lighting. And you've got props in a couple of those. Now, if you described every scene with all those five things, you know, we'd never, we'd never get to the end. You'd have a thousand page script. But I think yeah. that writers don't think enough about the five or six visual elements of film. And they're just describing what some people call false movement, which is scene blocking. It walks over to the window and looks out. Okay, yeah, on an actual movie, you would need that. And the focus puller would need to know that character A is moving to character to position B. But on the page, it's irrelevant. It's a different medium. You know, what you need mm-hmm. to describe is, you know, the, the, the flames sort of, I don't know, the smoke wafts in his face, you know, toxic <laughs> fumes billowing. It's that kind of, if that's right Got for the it. story. So, yeah, I mean, you, of course, you know, the smell, there's ways to visually, dis- if you see a, you know, rotting corpse, by describing the reaction of the character, obviously, you can say, you know, his stomach churns or whatever. How do you show that? That's a bit of an unfilmable unless you've got a yeah, exactly. camera inside your stomach. But, <laughs> you know, that you can cheat on occasion. But I, no, this is a real passion for me, guys, because it's something that has come from the work that I've been doing as a, a player coach. And the way that I do it is I don't give coverage. So I don't write notes. I don't give anyone any written paper. I do a podcast on their script. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's what I've heard that you do the uh, recording and how... Well, I, I saw on YouTube you did the live breakdown of one of the scripts submitted to you. And it, that was really insightful because just seeing all of the things you were taking out and just seeing the different approach to how you would want to take the story... It certainly gave me a lot of insecurity in my writing. <laughs> I don't I was like, that. I was like, oh, God, what am I doing? I'm terrible. But no, I mean, it was just so insightful and, and just made me realize how much I have to, I guess, up my game or maybe pay attention more to what I'm writing. I think we, yeah, all, we all do. We, and we're in a situation where it's so hard to break in that, as I said before, you've got to give them a good read. And what is a good read? It's a good story. It's a compelling character. But it's something that doesn't require the reader to read a sentence twice because you haven't visualized it enough for them. And, you ha- and also the biggest sin is overwriting, just including too much. You know, you just yeah. give them the essence. Look, if, the, if you might only describe 50% of what happens in the scene, but make sure you get the right things. And sometimes that comes from, you know, having a mate or somebody to come in and say, actually, listen, I, I don't really care about all this stuff. I mean, that's the other thing. 
If you were reading it, would you care that the character just turned and sighed and looked? Would you care? Would that be interesting to read? If it was in a novel, yeah. <laughs> would you find it interesting? And I think that a lot of writers, I've got a couple of clients who they say, well, you know, and they're not English language. They think, well, I can't write a novel, but it doesn't matter with a screenplay because, you know, you don't need to be as good a writer to write a screenplay as a novel. And in many ways, you've got to be a much better writer, I think. You know, novels are right. a, a much more straightforward when it comes to expressing what's going on in a character's head. Um, you are so, yeah. you're, if you're writing a screenplay, you've got one arm tied behind your back always as you're trying to just write what we can see and what we can feel. Well, to go, ba- uh, to go back on something you said earlier that I've, I've, I've always been trying to touch on and something that I've been saying in the, our podcast all the time is you say that a lot of your, your skill and your talent is going into rewriting. And I like to say, like, you just need to get, like, we, we call it the bones, right? You just need to get your bones set. So you need that first draft. I, I think a lot of people just sit there staring at a blank page, never starting. But it's like, that's not even the hard part. The hard part is now, once you have the first draft, is you now have to fix that draft. To me, that's the hard part. I can write shit all day. Like, <laughs> that's easy. <laughs> you'll know. You'll see. <laughs> no, but yeah, then I think you're it, absolutely right, it, Tom. Yeah. You are 100% right. Um, and I think there is a argument to write fast your first draft, as long as you've planned it. Otherwise, you really will write. It's quite easy to write 110 pages of absolute rubbish. But if you've planned mm-hmm. it out, then write fast. You know, it's like a wave. You've got to catch it and you've got to write it in and get it on the page. Get the mistakes on the page where you can fix them. But that yeah. second and third draft, you've got to slow the thing down. Your second draft should take you double the amount as your first draft, really. And I think I agree. I, a lot of you just want to finish the script and sell it. You just want to get it to your agents. And that's the target. That's the thing that's driving you. You want to get it out in town and you want to sell it. But go fast and then go slow, I would suggest. And ask yourself, is every sentence interesting in even a small way? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, that's something like I, I've been thinking about as well is because it's like, like you said, write fast and then write. And then you, then you, because like it's, to use an analogy, it's like once the house is built, then you can dress it. Like, yeah, I think if you just like if you're like you can't you don't just put up a wall then start painting that one wall. Like you need the four walls or the house just falls down. Yeah. So and then I, I and then you get to really dig in and like how like would you say how many rewrites or versions would you do on average? I know there's probably it's not like a set number, but what what, what are you ta- what are you thinking for your your yourself when you're like what are your rewriting like averages like 15 times or 10 times yeah and some of the, it it all depends you can reduce that if you put more time into prep the more right. time you put into prep i mean one thing that i would do is every morning and this is probably a bad habit but i did it anyway i'd always spend an hour or two rewriting what i'd done the day before making it read better. So what would happen is by the time I got to the end of the script, the first 10, 20 pages had been rewritten 15 times already. And then obviously the ones at the end, you could tell it was getting a little bit more loose and, you know, it was not nearly as honed. So I would tend to rewrite while I was writing so I could get that down. But I I don't know how is is the answer, Tom. I don't know how many, but easily, I mean, Matt and I, we've got files with 15 drafts in them on some scripts. Yeah, exactly. And that was something that I was thinking about as well is like, it's not just two or three, like you're working on, like you're chiseling away at this for a good while, I think. And 
So when you go to sell that script, are you guys waiting until that 15th version? Or are you just going in with maybe in the first draft for that kind of pitch? Or is it just completely well, this is, uh, you only, dependent? You only have one chance to make a first impression. And I remember when we first, we're not writing. We, 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 we went our separate ways a couple of years ago. So just to make that clear, you know, Matt and I have gone off in different, we're, we're very good mates. Um, but it was for a while, like a bit of a divorce, but I'll come back to that. Cause I think there's some more takeaways on writing partnerships and why it's good and the pros and cons of it. Um, but just sort of bringing it back to, we, we wrote this script, which was like a spy thriller set in the Vatican. And that got assigned by UTA and the manager. And this is quite a, quite a way before, way back. And the next script, that script had been rewritten to within its inch of its life. And it was so honed. It was a great script. And it went out. And it, I remember when, when they, they took it out, they said, that is the hottest spec we've been out for six months. And it didn't initially sell. Somebody picked it up as, for an option. But there was a time where it was literally that old school thing where you've got five producers with a studio each and they're all going in. And, you know, it's Monday. And then... If it hasn't sold by Tuesday, Thursday, it's dead. I mean, that's how it used to work. It was crazy. <laughs> but the adrenaline of that, oh my goodness, that was like going to the Olympics. <laughs> it was just so exciting. Now, everything's a lot more tactical. You've got to get talent and, you know, you know, you don't go into five studios normally at the same time. But the next time, that was such a buzz, we wanted to repeat it. So we, we said, all right, we now know what we're doing. We, we probably did four or five drafts of another spy thriller. We knew we should be writing something in the same space because that's what we'd become known for. But it wasn't nearly as good. And that was a massive mistake, which is we didn't do the R&D on it. We didn't give it to our trusted readers. We thought we now knew what we were doing. We were just so keen to hear what our agents thought of it. And that's a mistake. Mm. You, your scripts need, even when you're inside, your scripts need to be vetted because they'll read it. And then you go back to them two months later saying, I'd fixed it. They're not going to have the same excitement of opening a present on Christmas Day and not knowing what's in the box because they know what's in the box. And is it, have they really done it? It's burnt toast sometimes. Other times, if you've got a really good agent, they'll give you a whole load of notes and then you'll rewrite it, but they'll give it to you anyway. But it needs to be up to a level whereby it's, it's pretty good to start with. So yeah, even when you get an agent, the biggest mistake I think we made was not previewing our stuff before we sent it into our agents because we thought that this was an ongoing process, you know, and the, they were part of our team. And no, we, that was a mistake. Right. Okay. Interesting. Um, I did have a question. So when you're writing the script, how, how much of your voice do you feel you get to put into your script? And then how long did it take you to develop your, your distinct voice? Because I mean, you were talking about the Oliver Stone and Scorsese uh, mimicry there. So when did you find this is Dominic Morgan? Well, I'm, I, I wouldn't, I, I figured out how to put words on the page in a way that is engaging and that is, I guess, slightly literary, but, you know, aspires to having a, a kind of literary feel to it really. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, I've written action movies. I've written, you know, psychological thrillers. And you're trying to, to use every word at your disposal to get the job done. So yeah. when did I find out? I think every script is a test of what voice you're going to bring to it. 
Um, I don't think I ever got to the stage of, you know, Sorkin, you know what Sorkin's about. That You can yeah. hear his voice, Vince Gilligan. I, you know, I'm not that level. So I think I'm more like, well, what's the project? How do I feel about it? What feels right for this? So then you actively try to be more transparent in that regard? I think it's, you know, so- it's what kind of words and sentence construction. If you're writing an action movie, you're going to be mm-hmm. using shorter seg- sentence fragments sometimes. But here's a cautionary tale. I spent uh, mid, whenever it was, 2013, 14, I remember we spent, we started reading a lot of specs. Uh, we were writing, we just, our thing was contained thrillers. And we started reading a lot of specs that were selling. And what happened was, is there were a lot of writers who were sort of getting rid of whole standard sort of verb, adjective, subject constructions. And we were going for this haiku thing, which, you know, you read Alien, going back to that, it's people write two words, cold, impress, you know, impassive. And it's people writing in, in short sort of fragments. And yeah. we started to write with more of that style, thinking, okay, let's up our game. Let's, and our manager read the script. He goes, what's happened to your writing? What's going on here? It just doesn't yeah. read well. And it's, I said, no, 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 you know, you don't need to use. And I, I think he was, he wasn't hundred percent right. There are times if you're writing a fast sequence that you're going to chop down on the amount of words and you're not going to write out whole sentences because the words need to move as the action moves. And you can use sentence fragments, but I see far too many writers who get into their heads that they can dispatch with 2,000 years worth of communication and the way that we write novels and just evolve this kind of couple of words here, short sentences, ditching any form of grammar or expression, and the read can suffer. So I think it's about, with your voice, it's coming up with a balance of, of varying sentences. Now, here's another key thing sort of advanced screenwriting, I'd say it's about, you know, in poems, you talk about the meter of a mm-hmm. poem. It's the flow of it. And yeah. a good script has a meter to it. It has a rhythm. And it's quite hard to put your finger on what that is. But if you read yeah. a really good screenplay, the writer is like the conductor of the orchestra of the words. And it goes fast, it goes slow, it moves, it, 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 it suddenly changes pace. And that makes the read less monotonous. Well, it's not monotonous at all. But many writers, they will write all, you know, Billy and Johnny sit at the table. He looks at her askance. There's lots of that going on. That's yeah. not interesting to read. You know, you've got to mix it up, I would suggest. But, there are, you know, I, I think there's a lot more to say on this. You could do a whole course about looking at the great screenwriters, looking at the way they use wep- wep words, how they weaponize syntax, verbs, adjectives, and, you know, whether they capitalize things or not. Those kind of things. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm barely starting to scratch the surface of what that even means personally where I'm at. And I think one of the issues that I really run into a lot within my works is not understanding exactly what I'm writing and not understanding the characters I'm putting in there. You know, I kind of just do generic things, kind of superficial there. So that made me want to ask you, how much backstory do you give to your characters? Like how how far back do you go with them and allow them to become their, you know, an actual person? I would say that there are three tenses in screenwriting. The present, what is happening, 
the future, mm-hmm. what might happen, and the past, what happened. And the tense in screenwriting, which is most important, is the future tense, in my opinion. It's the reason you turn the page. And the present tense, what is happening, is the second most important. And the past is the least important. But obviously, there are some movies where the past is finding out what happened in the past becomes the quest of the character in the present. But generally, I think you do need to know where characters have come from. Mm -hmm. But just remember that the most important thing is what might happen, not what has happened. How attached do you get to your characters that you create? Too attached. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But but that's got to be a good thing, right? I mean, that... That has to be. Yes. I would always suggest to people, sometimes I, I see thinly disguised characters, which are, it's based on my experience, this. And these are always the thinnest characters in the world because writers are writing as though they're in the scene and they're writing yeah. as though they'd speak. And they, they have no objectivity on just, the audience can't see anything that they can feel or see. So I think writers who are writing about themselves, they get most attached in a negative way to, the characters. But yeah, you do get, you've got to be careful. You don't defend your characters. Actors do it a lot. They'll say, oh, my character wouldn't do that because they, they're defending. They don't want their characters to do bad things. And we need them to do bad things. We know. (laughs) All right. Okay. (laughs) We had, we, uh, on the feature that we made, one of our actors, we wrote, we wrote them as a pretty scumbaggy character. And he was just like not having it. Like he was, he would like do bad takes on, (sighs) until he got kind of got his way and it's like dude you're you're playing the scumbag i'm sorry like you you don't get to be a nice guy and it's like if that's not what you want like you shouldn't you like you should have read the script a little closer i guess so yeah well you got to serve the story exactly it's always about serving the story yeah but we did have to compromise on that and and change up the character and it did lead to maybe a more interesting character because there was that duality of scumbag and hero (laughs) Yeah, but uh, within the original iteration of the character, I mean, it was it was difficult. But that's some of the things we run into at our level because we're entry level filmmakers, and you know, we were talking about writing, understanding the perspective of the filmmaking. Because after we did this script, the feature, and now that we're writing scripts, now we're taking into consideration like, okay, how are we going to film this stunt? How are we going to budget this? How are we going to actually put this on a screen? And that's been one of the most beneficial things, I think. I don't know if you feel the same way, Tom. Oh, absolutely. Because there's a point where it's like, well, we can't film this anymore because I said I want to run that person over with a car, but we don't have we don't have the the capabilities of running someone over with the car unless you know we do it in real life. Yeah, and unless that's... we really do it, and we're willing to. You know, <laughs> we just got to find the right actor <laughs> or the wrong one. 